Good morning, church. How are you? Welcome back inside. It is so good to be with you and to have our worship team back up here. Oh, I got to be honest with you. I loved being outside. I loved it. It was just, there's something about there, about out there on the lawn and the open air and seeing the blue sky and some of the misty sky. Um, something kind of special about that, but this past week when the Santa Ana wind started blowing and our tarps just went, whoa, uh, we knew, we knew it was time. We had actually decided beforehand that we were, this was going to be the day that we were moving back inside, and that was confirmation. What a good God that we have, that he kept those winds back and those tarps up as long as we needed them, amen? So good to be with you, so good to be back in this room, back to some sense of normal. And yet we know this is not normal, is it? It's not quite normal. We can't help but notice that some things have changed. Some things are not the same anymore. We're not seeing the smiles that we once enjoyed. Maybe we're not experiencing those warm hugs that we once took for granted. We're spread out. Sometimes we look at each other and we see anxiety in each other's eyes. We see concern. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's fatigue. And if you were here helping last night, you're probably a little fatigued this morning. I know I am, even with that extra hour of sleep. Then there's the ones that we don't see, right? Not all of us are here. Some of us are still in that very high-risk category, and, and we still have to stay home. Some of us have moved on to different churches, and some of us are just more comfortable being at home. To, to those of you who aren't here with us this morning, and you're uh, tuning in through our live stream, let me just say I'm thankful for you, but I want to encourage you and remind you that church is not the same without you. There's something that just can't be replaced by a screen and a set of speakers. God's word urges, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Is the day of Christ's return drawing near? It absolutely is. Now, I don't know the day, I don't know the hour, and that's totally okay because it keeps me on my knees and looking up to heaven. I do know that with each new sunset, I'm one day closer. I'm one day closer. And as things keep going south in our world, don't you just long for that day to come. I'm longing for it. I love these times together. I long for that time when we're all together and there will be no further disruption of our fellowship, right? We're going to be together. We're going to be celebrating and it is going to be incredible. But until that day, Let's courageously and fearlessly set our hope alone on him and nothing else, and let's be the church. Amen? 
Let's be the outpost, the embassy of light and hope that comes from he who formed the world with nothing more than his words. And he holds it carefully in his hands and made a way for its weary wanderers to find rest and peace and joy in his presence. Church is not the same right now. Not the same, but don't lose heart. Christ will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what Jesus told us, and I'm holding on to that. Christ will build his church. Amen? Amen. Let's rise, church. Let's burn bright that singular, soul-igniting light of Jesus Christ, which darkness can never extinguish. 2020, it's left us, some of us, battered and bruised. And yet, 2020 ends with tremendous opportunity. Tremendous opportunities to bring good to a weary and wounded world. Let's be the church. How will you shine bright the light of Christ this season? Would you... Would you Come to the Lord in prayer with me before we get into 1 Timothy. Lord, we just, uh, Lord, we thank you. Lord, you have brought us from darkness into the light, from light, from death to life. And Lord, you've brought us together. And Lord, over the past many, many months, we have realized the incredible gift that we have in each other and being together here in this place at least once a week lord i thank you so much for that i thank you for the encouragement that i receive from these dear brothers and sisters i pray lord that you would use us together to build one another up with your word that we that your church might be strengthened and that the light that shines here might burn brightly to our community and that people around us might see they might see you. Lord, would you, in the days ahead, bring about a transformation here within our, our, our little campus here and outside of this campus, a transformation, a revolution for Jesus Christ like we never expected. We long for that, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would see us faithful, help us to be obedient, Help us to be Christ-like and use us, Lord, for your glory and the good of people that you have created. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. This morning, we find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. And maybe you have read ahead. I hope you've read ahead. And if you've read ahead, maybe you thought, well, this is going to be a sleeper. It's not. It's not. This is good. This is important. This is crucial to the life and health and impact of the church. Christ will build his church. His kingdom is forever. Praise the Lord for that. That's true. But individual churches, this little outpost here in Westminster, it will rise and fall on the shoulders of its leaders. Leaders make or break a church, don't they? 
And we all know churches, even very large churches that have been led astray or brought to ruin by leaders who have failed them. And failures take all sorts of different forms, don't they? Church leaders have failed morally, they've failed ethically, financially. Worst of all, I think, is scripturally, when they fail to communicate this for all that it says. Tragically, so many people have been led astray by pastors who have preached a gospel other than the one that's found in this book. A gospel that says that being good will bring you good things. Or a gospel that says it's all about social justice or about political reform, when in reality, the gospel is about reconciliation and restoration of the relationship creatures have fallen creatures have with their creator. Leadership matters. 1 Peter 2.9 tells us, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What an incredible high calling that we have, right? And yet leadership can cripple that, can cripple a church's effectiveness in how it proclaims the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. Hosea 4.9 says this, short verse, but it's very important. The, the little nugget we want to take just simply says this, like people, like priest. You've heard the phrase, like father, like son. The Bible says, like people, like in other words, leaders produce people who look like themselves. And that's a real scary thought for me. <laughs> godly leaders who have their lives centered on Christ will produce godly people. On the other hand, leadership that's corrupt, that's insincere, that's Christian in name only, that's pursuing anything and everything other than Christ... Well, you get the idea. So 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25, it draws our attention to how the church must maintain good leaders. I saw someone yawn. Don't yawn. That's what we need to focus on this, this morning. This is important. We, the church, need to know how to maintain good leaders. And if we fail to hold on to these four things that we need to be concerned about this morning, well, we're going to hurt our effectiveness here. We're going to hurt our, our unity. Worst, worst possible scenario is we lead some people to believe a different gospel, and they, we don't see them on the day of Christ's return. That's, that's not good. Four things we need to consider. We need to consider honoring. We need to consider protecting, rebuking, and selecting. We're just going to go down the list this morning. We're going to get through it. First of all, honoring. Verse 17 says this, 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, we talked about elders several weeks ago. But to be clear, once again, that term, the elders, it refers to church leaders who are spiritually mature, who provide oversight, 
and whose shepherd they care for and they feed the sheep with God's word. And they're called elders in the New Testament. They're called overseers. They're called pastors. And all three of these titles are used interchangeably. These leaders, they give themselves for the good of the church in a way that's beyond what the regular membership of the church does. And because of that, they're to be honored, Paul says. That word honor, it's a general term that refers to both respect and it can also refer to financial compensation. Most of the time, Paul didn't take any financial compensation. We do have uh, one record of him doing so, but he did make it clear that it should be the norm. Leaders in the church should be compensated. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians. All elders are deserving this type of honor, respect, financial compensation. But Paul tells Timothy here that there are those who deserve double, those who rule well. In the Greek, we could translate, those who stand first with excellence, he says that they are worthy of a double honor. Now, here's what it doesn't mean. I don't think it means that they should be paid double, okay? But it means that they are they're, they're set apart for an exclusive, beyond the normal um, a service that should be generously given respect and compensation. Now, I've been in churches where the congregation had this warped view of thinking that they were actually doing pastors and elders a favor by keeping them impoverished. I was on staff at one church where, where the, the lead pastor, he purchased a used Dodge truck, this gray truck. I thought it was ugly. He purchased this thing. But you know what? Almost immediately, we started hearing comments in the church guess we're paying him too much. Wow. How does he, how can he afford that thing? The idea is that if we, if we don't give pastors a lot of money, well, then maybe they won't be tempted to worship money and, and they'll learn to trust God more. So we're actually doing them kind of a favor here. And that's a really sad and inaccurate way of thinking. First of all, both, both rich and poor can be tempted to love money, can't they? We all can. If you've got it, you want more. And if you don't got it, well, then you can become obsessed with getting it. Secondly, money doesn't take away your need to trust God. You go down to South County, and you see so many people down there who are wealthy, wealthy. It blows my mind. And yet, as I interact with them, I realized very quickly, they need Jesus. They need Jesus desperately. This money is not doing it for them. Thirdly, this idea of keeping church leaders poor, it's, it's just not, not biblical. Paul quotes from the Old Testament. He says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, what a wonderful thing to be compared to an ox. Um, I'm very thankful for that. Oxen were, were, were workhorses, right? though they weren't horses, and they would, they would be harnessed to the mill, and they go around in a circle, turning that heavy millstone, grinding that grain into flour or whatever they were, were, were producing there, and, and the farmer would be tempted to muzzle the ox, because that ox, if he, if he was hungry, then he'd probably get hungry as he's walking around and around, pulling this heavy thing, just start eating. 
and eating and eating and eating. And no, 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 no. These, oh, where's my profit margin going? This isn't good. Put a muzzle on that thing. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. You don't muzzle that ox. They're working to prepare food for others to eat. Don't they deserve to eat as well? And Paul told Timothy, that's the same way we need to look at church leaders. Don't starve them as they work tirelessly to give you what you need. And then Paul quotes Jesus from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. The laborer deserves his wages. Laborer deserves his wages. If an oxen deserves his wages, well, then so does a hired hand. And if a hired hand deserves his wages, well, then shouldn't those who are serving in the church. You pay the plumber, you pay the pizza guy, the hairstylist, you pay that, uh, that, that guy who mows your lawn. You thank them, you tip them, you appreciate them. So why would you not generously do the same for those who are providing spiritual service that's aimed at producing godliness in you, which remember a couple weeks ago, that godliness it has promised not only for this life, but also for the life to come. The church needs to honor its leaders. That's, that's one of the first things. And I believe, you know, I believe that includes everyone the church employs. I've been in a lot of churches where the mentality was that we want to pay the least amount we can. Because this is God's money after all. And we, we, we want to hold very tightly to this. We want to pay the least amount we can when it comes to our staff. And I praise God here at Bethany that we have faithful, selfless servants who have been working up in that church office, and they've been working in the office upstairs here, and in the preschool office downstairs over there, and all around this campus throughout the week, they are loving children on this campus and doing all sorts of things that are useful for the ministry. And they've done that knowing that they can, they can earn far more someplace else. And yet they've been faithful. I praise God for that. And I hope that when you have the opportunity on November 15th that you can be here and encourage them. And all through November, if we could be writing notes and cards and just letting them know how much we love them and their sacrificial service here, that is it's incredible. But our goal when it comes to honoring employees, it should never be to pay as little as possible, but instead it should be to make their service here a joy rather than a burden. Let's be a congregation that joyfully and generously gives so that our employees feel valued and empowered and freed to devote themselves to completely to the work that they've been called to. A church, a church that maintains good leaders, it honors them. Secondly, it protects them. It honors them and it protects them. Elder shepherds need to be protected. Those who are serving in leadership positions, they're at high risk of being falsely accused, aren't they? Especially in today's, you know, sue everyone, accuse everyone world. It, it, it's it's going to happen. Make unpopular decisions, rub someone the wrong way, and they can easily lay siege to your integrity, to your credibility, to your moral purity. So Paul says in verse 19, 
Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So accusations that are unsubstantiated, they need to be ignored. Just ignored. Okay, I I heard you. Yeah, it's going to fall on deaf ears. Uh, This is one of the ways that we protect our leaders. We say no to those attacks. In the past two and a half years that I've been there, there have been some attacks. There have been some shots fired. There have even been those more subtle... Are you attacking right now? (laughs) There have even been some of those more subtle blows where it's just a—it's planting a seed of doubt, a hint of suspicion. Is he really doing the best job? Is he, does he really have good motives? Is she really honest? And it harms a person's characters. Such things are unbecoming of a church family, of the family of God. But they happen. They happen. They've happened here before. They will happen again. And when they do, we need to refuse to listen to them unless certain conditions are met. Unless there are at least two or three witnesses backing up that accusation. Then and only then should it be investigated. In Psalm 105:15, God says, "Touch not my anointed ones. Do not do, do do my prophets no harm." Now let me tell you what that doesn't mean, because I've seen this verse abused. That does not mean that church leaders are untouchable. It does not mean that. I was in a very sad situation in a church where a pastor's pattern of behavior, it was leaving a trail of battered and bloody people. But because he was put on such a high pedestal, and this verse was quoted, he couldn't be touched. And so you know what happened? You saw family after family after family leave broken and wounded. And God cared for them. He ministered to them. He's actually used them. And it's actually been a really neat thing how he spread out these people. And now all sorts of other churches are being blessed by them. But what a tragedy. What a sad thing it was. And to see how this verse was used. No pastor is beyond failure. And we need to hold them accountable. That's why Paul says you've got to protect them. You honor them. You protect them. But you also got to rebuke them. There is a time for rebuke. Verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Their ministry is public. The rebuke is public. Why do you do it? You do it so the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, do nothing from partiality. You see, hiding and hushing the sins of leaders, that's a deadly thing. It is deadly to a church. I've seen it tear a church apart. I still, when I think about what happened in that church, it just, it hurts. Melissa and I are going to meet with a family that that was wounded terribly by that church uh, in a couple weeks, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about it once again. Dear, valuable, wounded church family members, they had no choice but to leave, and it was a tragic thing. In another situation I know of, a church kept it quiet. One of the pastors had done something to one of the the leaders there, and it was kept 
very, very quiet. And you know what it resulted in? It resulted in that leader eventually, that pastor eventually leaving, and then they went to another church that didn't know anything about it. Guess what happened when they started finding out about it? That situation is unfolding right now. It's tragic. No, as tempting as it may be to keep things quiet, to things, think, keep things covered up, to keep things nice and tidy, because we don't want those, those, uh, those waves, those shock waves to go throughout our whole church. We, we're tempted to keep it quiet. But you know what? The truth needs to be brought into the light. This is serious stuff. And that's why Paul elevates its importance here by saying that God the Father, God the Son, even the angels are witnesses to what you do here. When it comes to the need to rebuke these leaders, you have a higher audience holding you accountable. If you fail to do this, not only will our church suffer the consequences, but we will answer to... A host of heavenly judges. We can't ignore this. Doesn't matter how charismatic they are. Doesn't matter how good of a preacher they are. Doesn't matter how popular they are. How many books they've written. It doesn't even matter how, that they've been here at this church. Years and years and years. Sitting elders, they need to be rebuked. No one is to get preferential treatment. And as they're held publicly accountable, the elders... The leadership, and even the people of that church, they're fearfully reminded of the de devastating consequences of sin. There's something really good about that. And you might say, well, fear has no place in the church. And then I say, well, doesn't it say that the beginning of wisdom is fearing God? A healthy fear of the holiness of God is important for us. Just before coming to Bethany, just before coming to Bethany, this is, was months, there were three pastors that I knew that served local to where I was that fell one after the other after the other in the course of a month. And let me tell you, that left the pastoral team at the church where I was serving looking wide-eyed at each other and saying, dude, don't let that happen to you. There's something good about public confession, something good about getting it out there in the open. The church needs to honor, the church needs to protect, the church needs to rebuke, and finally the church needs to select very, very carefully. Verse 22 reads this like this, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. The laying on of hands, that was one of the ways that the early church was recognizing and affirming the qualifications of a person and affirming them for service. It's what we did kind of just a little bit ago with, uh, with Brandon up here, our, our, our new intern. I'm so glad we're doing that, by the way. This is a wonderful thing to be able to invest in young people to help them uh, in their ministries in the days ahead, I, I, I think back on so many different people that I've had the privilege of, of bringing on as interns or serving under me, and now seeing their, their youth pastors or their pastors in different places, and their ministries are having far more impact than mine ever did. But to have been a part of that, you just go, wow, that is a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing to be able to lay hands on someone and commission them for service. But they now, they now are set apart, right? 
they represent the church in a way that is more significant than the rest of the membership. And they now have the ability to bring either shame or honor to the church in a greater way than the rest of the members do. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, you got to be careful. you got to be very, very careful who you lay hands on. Do not be too quick in ordaining anyone for ministry. Vet them, watch them, investigate them, think carefully, pray carefully about that decision. And then he writes, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Do you see, failing to vet church leaders, it opens the church up to potentially following that leader down a path where either we're doing wrong things or we're thinking wrong things and we find ourselves not in line with God's will. Carelessly selecting leaders, it can literally lead the church into sin. You don't want to do that. You don't want to uh, find yourself sinning because you've brought the wrong leader on. Then, he, then he, writes, he writes, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Laying hands on the wrong leader, setting them up for, for ministry, that's going to reflect on you and your purity. Timothy's pure and spotless reputation, his witness to other Christians, that could be tainted if he affirmed the wrong person could be tainted. And remember, as a pastor, Timothy's personal walk with the Lord and his example to others, that was really, really important. Paul talked about that in the last chapter in verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And then as an aside, Paul makes this little comment in parentheses here. Takes the opportunity to tell Timothy, um, by the way, keeping yourself pure doesn't mean that you should neglect your health, Timothy. We've mentioned before in our study that uh, there were some people that thought that denying their personal, natural, physical needs was a way of being more spiritual. Well, you know, I, I sacrifice this, and I sacrifice this, and I don't do that, and I, oh yeah, you're indulging in this, and this, and this over here. Well, I'm beyond that. I'm a more spiritual person. From what it seems here, it seems that Timothy had made a personal decision not to drink any alcohol. Remember the qualifications for elders? Should not be a drunkard? Timothy probably said, well, uh, you know what? I'm just not going to drink at all. I'm just going to stay away from it. I'm going to abstain. I don't want to cause anyone to stumble here. And there's nothing wrong with that decision. It made sense. Those elders weren't supposed to be drunkards. Timothy's setting the example. But wine in that day was more than just a beverage. It was more than just a drink to have with dinner. In the ancient world, wine was actually used as medicine. It was medicinal. So Paul says in parentheses, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. You've got some digestive issues, Timothy. You've got some, some health issues here. Don't let your commitment to purity prevent you from taking care of yourself. He's not encouraging him to go get drunk. Or to be out there and cause all sorts of people to stumble. No, 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 no. But he wants Timothy to know that you as a person, your physical self, your spiritual self, all of that matters. And then he continues on in verse 24. Continues talking about how you got to carefully select these leaders. What other reasons do we have to be slow and methodical? These are the last two verses. The sins of some people 
are conspicuous, he writes, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not, that are, that are not cannot remain hidden. So he says sometimes the good and the bad, the strengths and the weaknesses, the good works and the sins are obvious. Sometimes you just see them right there. They're, they're laid out on the table and you can tell, okay, that guy's qualified, that guy is disqualified. She is, uh, she, we, can, we can put a rubber stamp on her. We need to um, hold her back for a little while here. We need to be careful, right? Have our eyes wide open when we select leaders. And we need to recognize that just because a hole needs to be filled, that a need must be met, that doesn't mean we should rush to get someone into place. That's why we enter into this new season as a church of nominating people for our leadership board here at the church. We're going to be very careful about that encourage you to think very carefully about that selection process. And as we look at our whole leadership structure in the year ahead, we want to do so very carefully, very prayerfully. This really, really matters here. Some sins are obvious, he says. Some are not so obvious, and time will tell. So be careful, be patient, be watchful, be prayerful. Because leadership matters. It absolutely matters. We know that, and that's one of the reasons... People are turning out in droves this year for the presidential election. Leadership matters. Where we go as a country is partially determined by who sits in that Oval Office and so many other people who occupy those seats of power. And the same goes for those who lead a church. Same thing goes. Christ will build his church. But individual churches, they rise and fall with the leaders that they put in place. So... Let's be a church that honors our leaders, honors our leaders in the respect we give them, in the financial compensation we give them, in the care that we provide for them. Let's protect them. Gossip is so easy to come bubbling up in a church, isn't it? We don't want that to happen. Let's say no to false accusations. But you know what? Let's be not afraid to rebuke. Two, three witnesses, we investigate it, we see something's wrong. Oh, it's clear something is wrong here. We need to address it. We can't shy away from it. Yes, it might hurt our numbers. Yes, it might give us a bad name in the community. You know what? It doesn't matter. The right thing to do is to bring it out in the open, and we're going to trust God that he's going to bring us through that by being true to his word. And finally, let's be careful in the way that we select leaders. Let's be careful to how we select them in the first place. 